there. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Listen, let's get real, real fast. Is your head spinning right now? I'm guessing that most of us are now deeply ensconced in the dreaded October, November, December vortex. I know without doubt that I am. In September, in the first few weeks of October, I was pretty much on top of my game. I was making headway with every class, using first steps and conversational solfege. We were learning all these great games and songs. The kids were learning and I was happy. Then Halloween hit. Now you know I love Halloween and I love my Halloween lessons and the songs, but it's like as soon as that comes, especially here in New Jersey, we're in that barely in school November. For example, this week, as I record, we have our New Jersey Teachers Convention. So we're only going to see kids for three days. And lots of kids are out, taking the whole week off. Then come the many half days that we have here of parent-teacher conferences. And of course, Thanksgiving. Oh, and if you're working on outside performances or... Uh, family folk dance night, or of course the winter or holiday concert and sing-along, you're probably really deep into it. How do we balance the logistics of performances and holidays and days off with the day-to-day needs of your general music program? I don't have any fantastic answers for you, but I hope it helps you to know that I have these same struggles and I empathize with you. Honestly, my perspective is to just try to keep moving forward like Dory and amidst the chaos, take every opportunity possible to keep growing my kids as musicians while also remembering to cut myself some slack since I feel pretty guilty that I'm losing time. So for example, as I have to do more chorus rehearsals and preparation with my singers and sing-along prep with my younger kids, I make sure that, for example, in chorus, my warm-ups include conversational solfege work, review, and even some of the upcoming and current unit things. With my littles, I make sure that we are always doing pitch and movement exploration, that we're doing move-its, that I'm having them sing in solo as much as possible, taking any opportunity to do some kind of spontaneous arioso, beat-keeping activities, uh, and basically just doing first steps types of things whenever I can squeeze them in. And most importantly, I try to prep hard in December to make sure that I'm ready to hit the ground running for January, February, and March, which is for me the most consistent stretch of classroom instruction. Now, let's move on to another thing that sometimes can help me feel like a lesser than teacher. Not sure how it was for you, but when I finished my undergrad work 300,000 years ago, I barely knew anything much less how to teach all of the uniqueness sitting in front of me in my classroom. I felt especially ignorant when it came to the kids with disabilities. And honestly, though I have learned some things, I still feel that kind of helplessness. Like there has to be something more I could be doing, but I just am not exactly sure. So I'm happy that on today's episode, we're going to talk to our return guest and fame teacher trainer, Rachel Grimsby. Rachel is currently working on her PhD in music ed with a cognate in ethnomusicology at Michigan State University. One of her research interests focuses on using something called universal design for learning as a lens to examine how we teach music to students with disabilities. 
Rachel was the author of the chapter called Adaptations for First Steps in Music and Conversational Solfege in the General Music Classroom in the recently released book Fire Robin Fundamentals. And in this episode, she gives a broad introduction to universal design for learning, which is basically a set of three core principles which can guide teachers in examining the what and how of teaching so that we can meet the learning needs of every student in our classroom. Just a little show note, we recorded this last May when we were all in Chicago for the wonderful Heimbach Hoedown in Blue Island, which I encourage you to go to every Memorial Day in May. So you're going to hear a bit of whooping it up going on outside. But anyway, let's get to it. Uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am very happy to be here uh, with my friend and fame teacher trainer, Rachel Grimsby. Uh, Rachel, you have been on the podcast before and will be on again, I hope. Uh, We know a little bit about how you kind of, we call it your come to John moment. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your teaching experience and what you're doing now currently? Because it's pretty exciting. So um, I've taught for a total, if you include my student teaching, and I do, uh, because that was an experience, uh, 16 years, uh, K through eighth grade, because my student teaching was uh, fifth through through eighth grade. And um, I spent a few years back home in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, teaching in Admiral County until my husband's job moved us to Northern Virginia. And then I spent time between um, Fairfax County, Prince William County, and then going back to Fairfax County and ending, um, not ending my teaching career, uh, but during the course of my time teaching, um, I have had the privilege to work with so many amazing students. um, And uh, in my first few years, not being prepared to work. Um, especially with students with disabilities and and working with students with disabilities I would always question you know you know how how are they learning how are they processing what is it that I need to change in my instruction how can I meet their needs why am I not meeting their needs why is there no one here to help me (laughs) how do I do Um, this how do I do this um and as I, you know, I had some schools where I had amazing super uh, special education uh, teachers to work with and paraprofessionals, and I had others um, that weren't as supportive. Sure. It was like, oh, just let him sit in your room and right. sit. And I'm like, but he can learn. They, right. They, How they, can I help him learn? Yeah, they can learn. Oh, just let him sit and listen. He'll be fine. I'm like, right, right. Doesn't sit well with me. But as I was teaching, I kept having questions, and I had no way to answer those questions because we as teachers, we have so many preschool duties and after-school duties, mm-hmm. and, you know, lunch we have duties. lunch duties. <laughs> uh, we have anywhere from 400 students to a th- over 1,000 students that Oof. we don't share. So those are grades. We give interim grades every quarter. We give, you know, grade grades every mm. quarter. We give final grades at the end of the year, so there's just... There's not a lot of time for us to deeply research that which um, we question to help improve our instruction. You know, we have summer courses, but we can only go but so far in a week-long course. And so um, I decided early on in my career that I wanted to pursue my doctorate um, in music education. Um, And it just, just so happened. I wanted to do it about eight years ago and the timing wasn't right and I'm so glad that the timing wasn't right yep. because I have worked out all of this teaching experience um with 
so many various populations that I, it was just the right time. And so I applied to um, several universities and, um, and found myself at Michigan State University. Go green for my <laughs> fellow Spartans out there. Um, hopefully you all responded with go white. Uh, I have no, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a Spartan thing. Um, and I really went in knowing that I wanted to not only develop uh, my teaching skills to work with undergraduates and graduate students, but I really wanted to research uh, disability and how to teach students with disability because if those of you listening out there were anything like me, I left my undergraduate experience (laughs) and I had one course in the College of Ed, which had no application to teaching music. And I went to a university that had a music therapy program, but we were not required as music music education um, degree undergraduates, we weren't required to take any of the music therapy classes now i will say the caveat is this if you are not a licensed music therapist you should (laughs) not practice music therapy or employ those strategies into your classroom without being trained trained because the goals and the out the learning goals and the outcomes of music therapy are different um, from music education um but so you came out of undergrad. Knowing nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. I knew what an IEP was and I knew what a 504 was. <laughs> I didn't know was, what that was. <laughs> and I knew, my posi- I knew what my job was in an IEP meeting, um, which was basically to sit and to mm-hmm. listen. Um, and I knew, I didn't even really know about diagnoses of, of, of various, you know, right. disabilities. And so I get into my first job and I have these amazing students with, I, I mean... My first job was 2002, um, and I had a student who had sensory integration disorder, but I don't know if that was really something that was being diagnosed at the time. I just know that they would um, have anxiety whenever the instruments were pulled out because we had a tile floor. And it mm. was sensory overload. Right, and the so, sound and the... Right. And I was like, and the kid, you could see that that child wanted to engage with the instruments, but it was just too overwhelming for him. So he sat in the corner with his hands over his ears mm. and sometimes with tears streaming down his face. Sure. Um, and so I was, I had another student who her mobility was only through a wheelchair. She was, um, so most people know the term nonverbal and forgive me if I'm rambling. Um, no, not at all. Uh, she, I, I don't like the term nonverbal because to be nonverbal, completely nonverbal, you're not thinking words. But students who are nonverbal can still communicate with us. Yeah. So just I prefer different to, ways. Exactly. So I prefer to use the words oral verbal or aural verbal. Um, oral verbal meaning you and I are oral verbal. Right. We we're can talking use our words um, in a in a typical way. Um, whereas um, this young girl was aural verbal, where she was thinking words. She could understand you, but the only way that she can communicate was doing this oh, right so right. It was hand gestures hand gestures well, <laughs> for those of you who couldn't see <laughs> um hand gestures and you know through smiles or vocal sounds and gestures and looking back yes i did what i thought was best for them but i feel like i had did such a disservice to those students because I totally while they were included in my classroom they were excluded by my instruction. Sure. And so that's what I'm wanting to really research is how to better prepare 
our pre-service teachers to work with students, to teach students music um, for those students who have disabilities and how to better understand um, uh, a disability okay. and what that is. I noticed that you were using the word disability rather than something like I hear a lot of special learners, special needs. Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and I want to say that, you know, as a person who just does not know a lot, I think this is one of my biggest things. It changes. It feels like it changes all the time. Uh, can you tell me why you chose to use that word disability? Yes. Um, if we consider the idea um, of exceptional learners or special learners, um, all of our students Um, are special or exceptional in some way because variability is the norm um, and not the exception. We all learn differently. It's so interesting. I never would have thought of it like that, but you are exactly right. Um, And the reason that I use the word disability um, is um, from a, 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 a body of literature that we would consider disability studies. And there's various models of disability. Um, There's the social model. There's the medical model, which most of us, you know, not, forgive me for that assumption. (laughs) Many. Many prescribe to the medical model, which is a deficit mindset, where disability is within the person and within the person only. Right. Whereas models like the social model of disability or um, the um, model of embodiment, and I'm saying that name wrong, but it's uh, Siebers who um, developed that um, complex embodiment. There it is. Um, and then cultural model of uh, disability, um, which looks at uh, location and representation within media and film. Um, but the, the one that kind of umbrellas everything is this uh, social model of disability. And that, Im- that yes, a person might have um, an impairment, a difference, right. but it's not the person who is disabled. Mm. So I use the word disability because to use the word disability, I recognize that disability is a social construct reinforced by social, environmental, and economic barriers created by a society which shows preference for the able-bodied individual over the differently able-bodied individual. Mm. And using the term disability, I acknowledge that it is the environment that is disabling and not the individual who is disabled. Disability should be understood as a naturalized and embodied difference. It is not a natural fact, but a naturalized difference. And that statement comes from Ann Walshmitt, who is a cultural model theorist. Um, disability then is within the person and materializes upon different inhabited spaces. Um, disability is therefore contextual and fluid. Um, Take, for example, my son, Ben. Um, My son, Ben, has autism as well as ADHD. And within his home, he is not disabled. We respond to his abilities and his needs in the same way we respond to his sister's needs. Ben has agency in our family, meaning that he's able to use his voice to express his needs and his frustrations. He feels loved and safe. He doesn't feel different within his home. It's when he steps outside of his home and into the classroom that his peer that he becomes disabled. His right. peers do not understand why certain sounds are too loud for him. His peers don't understand his need to move and rock and that his humming and singing are ways of communicating. Um, his peers don't understand that when he is stressed, he actually loses his ability to speak and instead uses his sounds and his bodies, uh, his body to communicate. Uh, he is upset and as Ben has said to me several times, 
you know, everybody looks at me, they know I'm different. Mm. And it's not that, I mean, we're all different. Sure. Um, <laughs> you know, how are we different? It's how he presents. <laughs> right. So, you know, my son isn't disabled. None of our students are disabled. It's the social and the intellectual environments that they inhabit, which are disabling. Mm. Um, so that's why I use the word uh, disability. And using the word disability, I acknowledge that it's a social construct and not something that resides within the body. So you mean like, when you say it's a social construct, you're saying you're using a word that comes from, uh, what am I saying? Uh, that other people use, is that what you're kind of right. saying? Right, so it's a social construct in that we've created the disability. So if right. you think about buildings, if buildings aren't accessible to wheelchairs or walkers, um, those buildings disable individuals right, who right. cannot walk up the stairs. Um, if we consider our classrooms, if our classrooms are brightly lit, um, have tile flooring, um, aren't really organized in a way, they can become disabling to students. Um, and that is an environmental construct. It's something we've created. So it's therefore also social. Students, you know, when you're engaging in a large body of, of people, um, and even our language, like the language that we use with our students, you know, if it sets students apart from one another, our language in itself can become disabling. Mm -hmm. So that is why I say that disability is a social construct. It's okay. something that has been created by society. It has been created in physical spaces, economically. Think about the um, disparity between able-bodied and differently able-bodied individuals when it comes to jobs. Sure. Um, so social, economic, environmental. Construct. So if you, this is kind of a basic question, but I think important probably for the, you know, every teacher person, when I'm dealing with students, what kind of terminology can I use to make, to lessen that difference in my class? Because that's what I was saying earlier. We used to call students who came from the self-contained room, mm -hmm. was like, oh, those are, um, it just changed all the time. Oh, yeah. And I remember thinking, okay, I need you to educate me because I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing, and I just can't seem to help but say the wrong thing. Well, one of the issues is that we don't have, at least in my experience, um, I never had common planning time with my special education right. colleagues. If I wanted to have a conversation with them about a student or if I had a question about an IEP, if I had a question about a 504, I had to seek them out yeah, either before own school, after school, during lunch. Our schedules never aligned. And so, you know, we're, that's frustrating in, our, sure. in, our, in itself because I know that music educators out there want to know how to work with our students with disabilities, but we're not given the support. And I don't, that's a generalization. I realize yes, some I of you out there that. listening might have that time. Um, you know, that, that is who we should be going to. Those are the people who should be educating us. And they really do want to educate us, but we don't, we don't have the time. Yeah. Everybody's um, under time constraint. Right. Um, but as to how, you know, to address any student. <laughs> at, right. Right. That's so hard to. But any student. Anybody. Think about any student. Mm -hmm. and, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about universal design for learning, but if we consider every student as their individual unique self 
and approaching them the way in which they wish to be approached. It's building those relationships and asking them. Now, I know for our younger students, that's a little more difficult because sometimes for a kindergartner or first grader, for them to verbalize what it is they need or want is hard. It's hard, yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't approach my students with their diagnosis in sure, mind. Right. You know, I approach them with, okay, well, you know, Susie is um, on the spectrum. She has autism. Um, and Johnny has a behavioral disorder and, um, Alexandra, um, has a limb difference. Mm -hmm. And these are my kindergarten students. Okay. How am I going to make sure that the entire, you know, they have access to the entire room? How am I going to make sure that my instruction meets all of their needs without othering them? So, you know, if I know we've got a complex movement activity before class, you know, I might go to Alexandra and I might say, Hey, um, you know, we're going to be doing uh, city line, uh, where we pretend that we're cars and we're moving around the room and we're working on direct and indirect pathways. Um, and how would you, and she has a walker or maybe braces, right. you know, how do you prefer to participate? Do you want to use your walker? Do you want to use your braces or do you prefer um, to crawl? And I say that because I had a third grader who had cerebral palsy as well, who has, excuse me, he's still with us, uh, <laughs> who has cerebral palsy and a neurological disorder. And often he would say, ah, I'm fine with crawling because he just didn't want to be inhibited by his walker. So he right. would crawl around the room, roll around the room, um, you know, engage his upper body with as much as he could in the movement. But I gave him that freedom. Um, and for many of these students, they grow with each other. So the fact that they're not engaging in movement in the exact same way, well, none of our students are engaging in movement the exact, exact same way. way. <laughs> you know, and what's really wonderful to see is, you know, in this one student's, you know, I know I gave the example of Alexandra, uh, but this other student who I taught, um, the other students would use, you know, the movement of this one child with cerebral palsy and build off of it to create their own movement. So in a way, giving him the agency to move as he saw, felt, right. saw fit and was comfortable with kind of inspired my other students in how to move. So I would first start with, you know, how do we, how do we address these kids? Well, ask yourself, how would you want to be addressed? Right. How would you address any of your students? You know, every child wants to be accepted and loved for who they are. And nobody wants to have anything pointed out. And I would even sure. say that about adults. Yes, very um, true. So first and foremost, you know, go to the case manager. Go to the special education. Um, so when I say case manager, it's usually the lead special education teacher. And, at, you know, say, hey, I noticed these are the things on the IEP or I noticed these things are in the 504. Here's what I do in my classroom. How should I engage Johnny or Susie or Alexandra? Right. Um, in these activities and most of the time the people that I worked with would say ask them and so I would you know go hang out at lunch or you know in in Johnny's case the child who had cerebral palsy he always would come to my class five minutes early because he physically needed more time sure, to get to, to get class there. and I would just say hey this is what we're doing today bud and he's like I got it Mrs. Grimsby like, <laughs> cool right 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 and you know there are times, though, that you do have to make accommodations or modifications for those students, and that is just taking it on an individual lesson basis. So like folk dancing, for example, mm. I would say, hey, we're folk dancing, so when it's your turn to sashay, you know, 
And I would just tell the class, I'm like, just remember some of our, our friends, you know, we choose to go down the alley in different ways. So when our friend goes down the alley, if they need longer, and I just say in general to, sure, everybody, to everybody, we're going to skip, we're going to let him take the, you know, or anyone take those eight extra eight beats. And you know the dance step that comes next. We're just going to skip it and keep moving on. Right. And so it doesn't other that. that yeah, child. I like that. I like that idea of um, just asking the child. I think, I don't know, I'm, I can speak for myself. And I think sometimes I have this tendency to feel kind of paralyzed like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do and I'm so afraid I'm gonna are. do yeah <laughs> but I'm like I'm gonna do the wrong thing and then sometimes I don't do anything uh with that and I have had colleagues some colleagues who are like you know don't worry just let them be over there and then other colleagues who are like well you know you could do this you could I just I've often myself felt so in limbo uh but I just like cutting through, you know, cutting the middleman and just kind of talking to my students like I would with anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a kind of a cool concept. Now, you brought up uh, universal design for learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, universal design for learning is, first and foremost, absolutely amazing. Um, but I do want to, to stress that it's not, it's not, the band-aid or the answer for everything. Um, Universal Design for Learning actually started um, in a pizza shop. I have hey, to say, yeah, it's right? good. It's good. Um, so, Anything that starts in a pizza shop is good. I even want to say it started in a pizza shop in New Jersey or Massachusetts, but I don't think it was Mystic Pizza. Right. So, um, if you got that reference, yes. thank you for being the same age as me. Um, so. A group of clinical psychologists and neuroscientists were, you know, having dinner or lunch at a pizza place. Do they place. do that? No, yeah, right? They eat. And uh, they were talking about what they could do to work with students with disabilities to help with, like, reading skills, math skills, um, and engaging them in the general education curriculum. And from that conversation, CAST was born. So if you, I, I can't quite remember the acronym and we don't have Wi-Fi for our computers <laughs> or I would look it up. But if you go to CAST.org, you'll have tons of information on universal design. design. Wonderful. But um, uh, Maya Rose and then later Gordon um, moved from universal design um, with just focusing on students with disabilities and what they realized in working with students with disabilities, it wasn't the student that was disabled. It was the curriculum yes, that was disabled. And so very much talking about disability earlier as a social construct, Meyer, wrote, Meyer and Rose and later Gordon, um, not Ed Gordon, this is a I different was Gordon. Say, was it Ed Gordon? <laughs> Let me clarify. Um, decided to look at this process of developing mate learning materials for students with disabilities and looking at it for all students. Hmm. So uh, universal design for learning is a set of principles for curriculum development that give all students equal opportunities to learn. It provides a blueprint for creating instructional goals, assessments, methods, and materials that work for everyone. It's not a single one-size-fits-all solution, but rather flexible approaches that can be customized and adjusted for individual needs. There are three core principles of universal design for learning. 
That's multiple means of representation, multiple means of engagement, and multiple means of action and expression. So if you think about, um, I'm not going to get into the neuroscience of your brain, even though I'd love to. We can talk about that I know. in another podcast. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> you know how excited yes. about the brain I get coming from the person who took neurobio for fun right, right. as an elective. Um, <laughs> sorry, I digress. Um, multiple means of representation are in the simplest understandable form is how many different ways can you represent that which you're teaching? So... If you think about, um, you know, the first steps curriculum or the conversational soul fetch curriculum, you know, universal design for learning really kind of is very fluid with universal design for learning. So while, you know, we have the kinesthetic and we have the aural, all we have to do um, to bring multiple means of representation is think about song selection. If you know that there's children in your school who are struggling with engagement, but they're you know they're interested in like trains or dinosaurs right. or whatever, you can pull in songs that fit into the eight-part workout mm. to kind of engage them in their prior knowledge. Um, you can use pictures. You're not, you're not putting the words up for students to right. see, but if you put pictures up on the board that represent the song, think about the pictures that are in... Um, uh, like uh the picture cards the picture thing? cards yes. thank you that gia sells of like um oh in the woods oh in the woods and down by the bay those visuals are another way for students to engage in the learning and when i say visual and aural and kinesthetic please understand that you're not a visual learner or right. an aural learner or a kinesthetic learner that's right. a neural myth we learn in all of those ways right. but we simply have a preference and so when we approach our teaching, if we offer multiple means of representation right. of the material, we're, all the students are going to have an avenue to engage with yeah. it. Um, multiple means of engagement is multiple means of, the, of ways that students can engage with the material. So okay. um, they might be, think about learning centers, you know, maybe they're singing with one another, or maybe they're singing, they're using puppets, or maybe they're using books, or maybe they're doing one-on-one. So, you know, doing student-centered activities where the students are teaching each other, um, doing teacher-directed activities, doing one-to-one partner hmm. activities, um, different ways of perhaps oh and then uh the next one multiple means of action and expression um is how many ways can students express what they know so maybe you have a student who isn't quite comfortable singing but mm -hmm. they could show that they understand the song by using picture cards so often right. what i'll do is i'll have picture cards of the songs that we're singing and they're just on the lanyard around my neck and the students, I have had students who will use both their voice and their and the point to the pictures to echo me. Hmm, and that's I've fantastic. had yeah, and I've had some students who um, are oral oral sorry oral <laughs> that means yes, by the ear oral verbal, and they will point to the correct picture. So let's say I'm doing um, Billy Groggin's goat, and I'll have little pictures for each of the echo responses, and I know that they're hearing the song. Sure. I know that they know where to respond by pointing to the right picture. Mm -hmm. If it was just sing after me, they wouldn't have the ability to express what they know, but by providing multiple means of um, action or expression, meaning multiple avenues to demonstrate what they know, 
more of my students can be successful. Hmm. And again, if you go to cast.org, there's actually like little bullet points underneath each of the three core principles. Okay, so this is this is like brand new knowledge for me. I don't think I've ever heard of. And new- I'm just skimming the surface. There's right. so much more that I. I'm could getting tell it mixed you. up with understanding by design. Yeah, those are two. Those are different. <laughs> That's things. a different you mm-hmm. coming. Okay, so uh, would you be willing to come back in the future and let's talk about this more at length? And hopefully, that would give you more time. Uh, also, mm-hmm. to look into it for us, do a little work for us absolutely. and help us. I've absolutely, I've <laughs> actually uh, done a lot of work on universal design for learning. It was one of my comps. Okay. Um, which you understand yes, that. Yes, I'm sure you've done a lot of work on it. Then. You've been down that path. Um, but I, I would love to. It's a passion of mine, and I really think it's just uh, a great way to become able responsive. Okay. And I, and it, Able responsive is not mine. I actually, uh, that's a term that uh, Dr. Karen Salvador, who is our new professor at Michigan Ooh. State, um, used. Go Spartans. Go green. Go white. Hey, you got it. <laughs> um, she used that actually in her, um, in one of the uh, sessions that I, I saw her give. And I was like, able responsive, that really aligns well with universal design for learning. <laughs> Um, and I'm happy to talk yeah, more awesome. more about that as well. Okay. I, I could talk for hours about this, but I won't. Well, we will over time. We'll talk about it. I mean, I think, um, if, what if somebody was interested interested in learning more? You already talked about the cast.org. Um, and do you have a book that you would encourage people to read? Yes. Um, and so this book is going to be based in general education but like most things are like most things are (laughs) one day you'll write a book someone should write a book about universal design i wonder who could do that rachel grimsby i don't know go green (laughs) go away (laughs) um so the book that i would suggest and you can get it for your amazon kindle or your e-reader um it's, it's on mine is universal design for learning colon theory and practice and it is published by cast which is in Massachusetts, excuse hey. me. I think I said Connecticut before. Oh, so. I don't know. And the authors are Meyer, Rose, and Gordon, but not, not Ed, Ed Gordon. Gordon. <laughs> uh, this is D. Gordon, and I can't remember. Uh, How do you spell Meyer? M E Y E R? So M E Y E R for Meyer, Rose as like in the flower, flower, and then Gordon as in as Gordon. As in not Ed Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also. Uh, in- oh! There's oh, another gosh. book. There's Sorry. another book. Um, one that actually is a little more centered on music. Uh, Judith Jellison uh, oh, sadly yeah. just retired, um, but she's amazing. And Judith Jellison wrote a book called Including Everyone. Oh, fantastic. And, I think um, I've seen that book. Yes. It's like it's a black book with multiple different colors on it uh, with beautiful pictures of children on the front. But what I love about this book is she gives a brief history of special education she talks about the paraprofessional those are your best those individuals are your best friends (laughs) buy them coffee and chocolate because they never get a break just like us yes exactly um but she really looks at and the reason it's called including everyone is she wrote that book through the idea and the lens of universal design fantastic so there are strategies in that book um and again, when you're th- when you're talking about universal design for learning, understand that it's meant for all students, but you still will have students who will need that accommodation or modification because the principles of UDL 
don't quite address their need. For example, somebody with a limb difference, I will have to change how they play, say, recorder or a barred instrument. Um, so what I might do for that is, um, well, I, I, if you check out Fire Robin Fundamentals on Facebook, I posted a video of something go. called Spectrum, which you can record different sounds on. Well, if you had many of those, any students could choose to yep. play the recorder on that. So even though you are purchasing those as an or as a modification for a child with a limb difference, allowing any student to use yeah, it makes it universal. Mm -hmm. All right, so those are some things I was going to say before in our Fire Robin Fundamentals book. Uh, Rachel authored a great chapter uh, that you should check out, chapter 12. I remember it well from editing. Yes. Chapter 12. Chapter 12. Uh, so check that out. And um, we, I hope, I'm going to try to talk Rachel into writing something for FAME members on our teacher trainer corner. Uh, go to a class with Rachel. Get her to your district. Um, I try to talk about this whenever I have a teacher trainer out. Um if you have questions, reach out to her. Please email me. Yes. And um, I'm currently in my dissertation phase. So if you email me, <laughs> yes. I, and I'm dead serious, I tell people this at conferences or when yes. I give my workshops, <laughs> you, I respond pretty quickly. I'm giving it like usually it takes me a couple of days to a week to respond just because I'm doing the dissertation. Right. But please, my email is on the FireObind website Probably, as well as the GIA website. Okay. And if you have questions, please don't hesitate because we need to be here to support each other. And that's how we learn. We learn by talking and doing and, yep. and asking questions and asking questions yep. and trial and error. I know something you mentioned, you were like, oh, sometimes I'm in limbo because I don't know what right. to do. It's okay to make a mistake because mm. when your students are seeing that you're actively trying to engage them in the learning and do what they need, if they actively see you seeking out ways to engage them in instruction, they're truly going to respect you and appreciate, mm. appreciate you for that. And, you know, I think that's something we should do for all of our students. Yeah. No, excellent. Well, thank you so much. You've given us a lot to think about. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you for for taking the time to do this because it's been a really busy uh, two yes, days for you. Been, we're here at the Heimbach Hoedown. You may have heard some uh, music in the background because some screaming some running we've yeah. got all kinds of stuff so we're about to go head out to the party and then i'm about to get on a plane and go home on a jet plane. <laughs> um so thank you very much and we'll talk to you the next time sounds great thank you for having me so of course that was a pretty broad overview of some weighty concepts and because they deserve more time and I know we all want more help in future episodes we're going to continue to mine the topic of UDL and special needs and learning disabilities in the music classroom for more information that we can take back to our classrooms. Now let's move on to the ask me anything segment. Last time, Allison S. asked me, tell us about your doctoral journey, specifically about having the doctorate and continuing to teach elementary general music versus pursuing a professorship. 
So last time I talked about the first part of Allison's question about the actual journey of getting my doctorate. And this time I'm going to finish up by talking about why I chose to stay in my elementary classroom rather than pursue becoming a full-time professor. And before I say anything more, I want to be clear that I have an immense respect for many in the music education uh, professor position that I know. Uh, they work incredibly hard, they're devoted to their students and to writing and research, and they do all of this for way too little money and a lot of stress. <laughs> now that I've said that, I personally can honestly say that while I do enjoy the work I get to do at a few different colleges and universities here and there with some shout outs to my peeps at Montclair State University and Grand Mesa University and Toccoa Falls College where I get to teach every year. To quote a good friend of mine who was talking to me a few years ago, I have the career I want, the perfect career. I get to do the things I love, stay in the classroom with my littles, which I love, uh, and I get to work with grown-up teachers uh, as much as I would like to, really. I'll go one step further. Uh, never in a million years would I think that I would be doing all that God has allowed me to do now. And there's no way I could do it if I had left the classroom when I got my doctorate. Here I am working with my Fleetwood students, who are the best elementary students in the world, of course, along with your students. My colleagues are top-notch, and many of them are uh, genuinely dear friends of mine. Fleetwood Elementary School is my home, and while I know I'll leave here one day, I'm happy to say that even in my 25th year of teaching, I'm not ready to go quite yet. In addition to my full-time teaching job, as I said, I also get to work with lots of you, tons of fantastic music educators here at home in the States and even around the world. I got to write and edit a book with my music ed hero, John Feyerabend, and I get to present at conferences and in districts where I meet the most enthusiastic, fun, dedicated, and sometimes greatly overworked music educators ever. So thank you for that question. If you have other questions you'd like to ask me, whether it's about my own life or my views on music ed, please send them to tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com. The Feyerabend Association for Music Education is wonderful enough to make this podcast possible. And speaking of fame, I think you know what I'm going to ask. Have you become a member yet? I just completed the most recent newsletter announcing some fantastic new content for members, like a boss new set of Ask Me Sheets and another brand new Move It from the Nutcracker. So what are you waiting for? Visit firerobinmusic.org for more information. Forgot how to spell Firerobin? Let me remind you of the E-I-E-I-O principle. F-E-I-E-R-A-B-E-N-D. Firerobin. To learn more about said Fireobin and his programs and resources, head over to giamusic.com slash Fireobin. And of course, our Fireobin Fundamentals page on Facebook and our Twitter page and my Instagram page, as well as my own Twitter page at DocStrong26. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes here with me, and I hope you were encouraged, you were provoked to think, and that you found this information helpful. Please tune in for our next episode, and until then, continue to do everything you can to create a more tuneful, beatful, artful world. <laughs>